Welcome back to the Everesting podcast built by Quarite. This is part two of 10 tips for Everesting. So here's tips six through 10 with Guy Townsend, Sir Guy Lightspeed, who has compiled this list after his own Everesting experiences. Actually, for, start beginning with a failed Everesting attempt is what got all of this started. He is now as self-described serial Everester and a tremendous gentleman, and we appreciate him spending some time with us on the podcast. This episode of the show is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company. You can visit them at statebicycle.com and check out all of their awesome bikes for a whole bunch of different uses. They have stuff in stock, including parts and apparel, statebicycle.com. And on to tips six through 10 with Sir Guy Lightspeed. Next point is, uh bike prep and training now we could spend an entire uh day on that but in brief i mean the first thing on bike prep is have a think about your gearing you know can you without completely rebuilding your bike but you know can you make life slightly easier if necessary so uh where I've, I've done two steep everest things and in both instances i, I pretty radically changed my gearing um Right. And actually, the, the new, you know, this new plethora of group sets in the last couple of years, I mean, that, that is now possible. Um, so, particularly, you know, particularly if you happen to own a gravel bike or something, switch the tires. It makes a pretty good Everesting bike. Because um, it probably already has that favorable gearing. Correct. Yeah. So, um, so I've, I, I think I've, I've Everested now four times on an open up. Just, awesome bike. You know, twice off road, but twice on road where, where it was really steep same bike same bike yeah, yeah. and uh, you can for not too much money you can change a cassette and a derailleur correct. And if this is if you're only ever going to do it once you can probably sell those parts after so we're yes. not saying be flippant about money and do whatever but you do have some flexibility in there although i will say it depends on when you listen to this episode but with the state of bicycle parts right now if you <laughs> think yes. you're going to order an 11 or 12 speed cassette with a huge gear Order it as soon as you can, months and months in advance of your Everest thing. Because yeah. if that if if that if that cassette is the difference between you making it or not, order it now. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, the other thing actually, and I think it's better known now. But when I when I did my first steep one, I think it was 2016, uh, and my local bike shop, kudos to them, ended up speaking Shimano directly, and they discovered that Road Di2 was compatible with XTR Di2. And that, that allowed me to, on a standard road bike to get a 3440. So I had a I had a, an XTR rear derailleur and cassette running on a standard road road 3450 setup. And that was Do you have a picture of that? I do have a picture of that actually. Yeah, it's like okay, a send it to me sometime when you yeah, it's, it. it's, I'd love I to see it. it. Yeah. And now of course, you know, we now we we're more used to seeing those cassettes on gravel bikes. Sure. The, the road bikes anyway so it probably now wouldn't look quite so weird but i remember the time people were like oh my gosh how did you do that um so yeah but um, i think you shared with me that you had essentially you created a it, you still had you still had a double chain ring up front but you essentially had it was set up as, as though yeah, it was a, a one by that day it, yeah so i i um exactly right so it was a 50 50 34 but what i was told by shimano was if you shift into your big chain ring You'll rip, you'll rip the rear derailleur off. Um, your chain is just not going to handle that. So I, I had to remember not to shift, <laughs> uh, which every time you turn around for descent, that took some doing. <laughs> You're immediately reaching for that lever. Yeah, right? you know, yeah. sort of like keep your hand away from that button. So, <laughs> um, 
Um, uh, the next thing, actually, really important is just have a think about your brake pads. Um, you know, whether you're on rim brakes or discs, uh, 9,000 meters of down is a lot. So if you're on new pads, it's unlikely that you'll have to change them partway through. Uh, but if it rained off road, you might have to. Um, so, you know, one, make sure they're new before you go. And, and two, categorically have a spare set with you. Um, just in case. Uh, the other thing to think about, um, having spent some time around the hill climbing scene, is yeah, can you lighten your bike and your pockets? Yeah, you almost certainly can. Um, and actually, actually, generally, I think from what I've seen of people approaching Everest, they don't really think about that that much. Um, you know, can you can you swap out your deep section wheels for something more climbing orientated? Can you lose a bottle cage? Can you? You know, for sure, you don't need to carry a load of tools with you. You might not even need a spare at all. You know, maybe if your climb's only a kilometre, you know, right. worst case scenario, you can walk back to base camp. Um, so versus carrying even what like three quarters of a pound of tools for twenty hours, exactly. of course, that's going to add up. Yeah. Likewise, likewise, unless you have a really long climb, I mean, like one bottle half full probably will do. You. Um, so have a have a think about that i mean the other thing and we should always be careful around this topic but uh if you plan your everesting a long way out uh can you lose weight do you want to lose weight? you know yeah. now you know as a big guy so i'm you know one nine four centimeters six foot four and uh uh you know i'm i'm always you know my sort of racing weight is 82 kilos i probably am 83 84 most of the time but if I was planning an Everest thing a long way out, I'd at least try to get down to my racing weight for that for that day. Right. right. It, it probably has more of a mental positive than a than a physical one, but it's it's all going to count on you know a uh, a nine thousand meter ride. I mean, it's going to have some positive impact. So. Yeah, yeah. For something that is so so climbing oriented, it's yeah. it's almost only climbing oriented. You yeah, can only correct. win by essentially. Lowering your body fat percentage, yeah. you can do that, right? D don't yeah. don't lose valuable weight, don't lose muscle, don't don't reshape your body over it. But if you can lose a few, you're it's you're going to appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else can should you think about when it comes to the bike? You know, just is everything in good order? Um, you know, it's definitely not a time to. Yeah, you know, I remember I uh, the very first one I did, I destroyed a bottom bracket and had to switch bikes halfway through. <laughs> so. You know, now with hindsight, I should probably have realized my bottom bracket was on its way out. So, so definitely prep your bike. Um, the other thing I get asked about a lot, and and you know, we're going to cover this in a in a blink now, but is you know, how do you train for an Everesting? Now, I'm uh, my son is actually a qualified coach and has Everested, so he he could answer this in a lot more detail with a lot more authority. But um, I, I think you know, in short, lots of climbing lots of volume and lots of back-to-back -back days and the, and the reason for the back-to-back -back days is i think they simulate that endurance you know this is a ride that just goes on when every other ride would normally have stopped hours ago so riding on tired legs yeah exactly right I, exactly right yeah. I, it, there is you know I, I remember asking um tom my son you know is is there any point to me doing a 350 kilometer 5000 meter ride in advance of an Everest thing. And, and he said, funnily enough, there is, it's almost inexplicable, but there is absolutely a change that goes on in your body when you do that. Um, and therefore it is beneficial at the right point in a lead up. 
Um, so, so my personal sort of uh, sort of milestones on the way to an Everesting are, you know, to do a 200k 4,000 meter ride, because that will probably take me the best part of 10 hours, um, and then I do a 350k 5,000 meter ride. I mean, always. And how so, far in advance of your Everesting do you try and do those? Yeah. So, so the, so the, basically the the 350k 5,000 meter ride, which is you know that's like the last big ride I'll do before an Everesting. That does somebody like me that puts me in a hole. So, sure. and and therefore I tend to do that about a month before, three to four weeks before. And then uh, I basically keep doing kind of 100 mile, 3000 meter days in the lead up. So I would, you know, and, and I favor a short taper. So, you know, maybe two week taper from a big ride, but, a, but only a week's taper from a reasonably big ride. So it, it definitely don't taper too much. Um, actually, one of the things, of course, that now exists, uh, one of the best ways to train for an Everesting is to do a base camp Everesting, a half Everesting. Right. I mean, that, that is, you know, that didn't exist uh, when I started doing these. So it's only come about in the last couple of years as a as a thing. Um, but that is a great way of training and practicing and, and understanding what's going to happen and sorting out, you know, oh, gosh, I wish I'd done that. I should have done this differently. So, uh, yeah, base camp Everest things are a great way to prepare. And, and if I was doing one of those as prep, I would do it three or two weeks out. Okay, that takes us to point seven. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, I think I'm, I mentioned I failed on my first Everesting attempt, um, and one of the things I got wrong was I put my base camp at the top, and uh, and what that meant was uh, one, it was exposed to the wind. Two, uh, whenever I arrived at it, my heart rate was high, uh, my I was out of breath, and therefore I wasn't actually really inclined to get off the bike. I wanted to spin down. So, you know, I wasn't inclined to get off the bike, drink, eat, sit down, etc. Um, so what I realized really quickly was I should have put my base camp at the bottom. Um, and in in every Everesting since, I always put it at the bottom. Um, the only exception was when I did a climb with very few reps, which meant that it was a really long climb. So this was the Bonnet in, uh, in the Southern French Alps. And it's a it's it's a 24 kilometer climb, and I didn't like the idea of being so far away from my base camp if it was at the bottom. So I actually put it about 10k up the climb, in a in a natural layby, and that that worked perfectly. So I would see it twice during each climb and descent. Um, That's a brilliant move on a long course because then you you've cut, you can essentially cut the distance from the car that you could ever be in half. Yeah. Exactly. And it, and what it meant was that I could still ride with just one bottle. Um, just right. it was a big bottle, but I could still do it with just one bottle. Um, so, yeah, so I think Basecamp is, uh, if at all possible, generally for most people, it's going to be at the bottom of the climb um, and make it, you know, ideally it's, you know, it's somewhere where you can uh, put your car without it, without it being a problem somewhere where, you know, safely, where there's a bit of space for you to, you know, stretch, sit down, like it, it should be this little sort of haven, <laughs> somewhere to relax. Um, and of course, think about if people are coming to join you, you want a bit of space for everybody. So right. some sometimes there's no natural spot, but actually it's, it's amazing how often there is a place for a base camp um, at, at or really close to the bottom. 
Um, Good point, though. Scout it out yeah, to make sure you've yeah. got the space you need. The, and then the other thing is, um, people ask about, you know, uh, what are you going to take with you? What should I take with me? I mean, the truth is, everything that you want in terms of kitchen and food, everything that you want in terms of wardrobe, you know, changes of kit, um, you know, spare chamois, foul weather gear, uh, all of this, just, you know, blanket to wrap up in when you do take your breaks. Uh, a chair, you know, it's, it's, you, you won't want to stand up. Ironically, you think you'd want to walk around because you're spending all this time on your bike, but actually you just want to sit down. Um, so, but also it becomes your workshop. So, you know, your tools, uh, everything, you know, what you might, you, you're for sure going to need your track pump. You may well have to change a flat. You might get a squeaky chain. You, you it's a, you know, I, I've always had spare wheels with me. Um, if not a spare bike, spare wheels, but, spare bike. Yeah. So, it, so, so your what is typically for most people their their car, you know, becomes part kitchen, part wardrobe, part workshop. Um, and and my my sort of final piece of advice on this point is be super organised. So that thing that setup wants to be really well organised to the point where you know where everything is in the dark when your mind is fried. <laughs> um, I remember this uh, from my first gravel Everest thing. So this would have been number three. Uh, I'd thrown everything into one duffel bag, all my clothing. I searched so many times for my arm warmers, heading into the night. It was getting cold, could not find them. Asked my friend who was with me, looking after me on the hill, can you find my arm warmers? He couldn't find them, never found them. Got back home the next day, emptying the duffel bag. There they were. So I should have been more organized. Right. So what you try and try and set it up in such a way where you can operate on half of your half of your IQ yeah. points. Yeah, what yeah. I now do actually, um, I don't know if you've seen um, lens organizers for cameras. They're usually just, yes. Yeah. So that's what I use for. I mean, literally everything like my clothing is organized into those my food, my kitchen and my workshop. I literally just have four or five lens organizers. All these tidy little compartments. Yeah. Though. Yeah. And that way I can see it at a glance. And when my mind is not doing what it should be uh, in those final 3000 meters, um, I can still find things. All excellent advice and tips. On Everesting number seven outdoors, I'd had a really good day. I got to about 6000 meters. It went dark, temperature dropped, and I had a massive bonk, the biggest bonk I've ever had. I literally sat in the car shaking. And yeah, so it was a proper bonk. And I and, and I And were you thinking it was probably over at that point? Yeah, and it, you know, having ever said a lot, that you know, I'm like, I can do this. Why am I suddenly feeling so bad? So so it was almost worse. <laughs> you know, if it'd been my first one, I'd just sort of gone, ah, oh, okay, I knew this was gonna be hard. But um so uh I managed half a gel and half a half a plain bagel. That's all I managed. Um and I rode the next eleven laps, which must have been about six hours, nonstop. No problem. Really? Yeah. See, and my, what I took away from that was actually you can run on empty way longer than you think. And you can come around too, right? Yeah. And I guess that's the only part that I would add to that is that this, it happens psychologically, but it also happens physically where you can kind of ebb and flow between this, like, I'm yeah. fine. I can do this. I can keep doing this to moments of just like, whoa, and they can come really quickly together so if you're in a low point know that there's probably another high point coming you just gotta wait for yeah, it you, and keep pushing right exactly right you can you can dig yourself out of the hole uh, the key is to get back on your bike if possible safely
Yeah, so I just keep moving and don't let that time evaporate. Yeah, yeah. Not um, necessarily, anyways. And then, the, then so number nine um, is the tech part, which I, which I really yeah. break down into, which is you know it's a big again. Uh, this question comes up a lot. So it, it, the rules have changed over time. You didn't used to be allowed to use a phone, for example, to record. It had to be a GPS device. Uh, okay. Now. I think phone recordings are acceptable, but my strong advice, you know, phone batteries, you're going to be using your phone for other things, phone batteries, et cetera. I mean, ideally use a GPS device um, for your own peace of mind. Um, and I run two side by side, so I don't rely on one. Okay. So it's the only time, no other event do I run two, two GPS devices, cycle computers, but on, on everything, I have always run two and I would never run just one. Um, okay. Because we all know they can fail. Um, Definitely, especially if you're in wet weather or there's a number yeah. of factors, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I always run two. Um, that, that's the first thing. Second thing is, um, uh, you know, practice, practice using your lap computer, uh, your, you know, your, your, um, your reps, just to help you. Um, you know, particularly if you're if you're practicing hill reps, if you're practicing on the climb, just get good at using using that lap counter. And unless you right. race. Generally, people don't use their lap counters. So sure. a lot of people that come to Everest, I'd never used it until I started Everest. Um, so uh, it also simplifies your, simplify your screens. You know, turn some things off um, because it oh, just okay. prolongs your battery life. And, and okay. ultimately, unless you run, so if you happen to run a Garmin 1030, then there is the most amazing recharging device available, which is a it's a Garmin product and it sits underneath the Garmin mount and there's a battery pack that attaches and it is amazing. Okay. And if you can just switch your I run two 1030s and I just switch them in and out of that mount and they're fully recharged on the go. There's like no pause. Um, and there's no because the, the problem with recharging on the go, there are there are lots of add-on battery packs and cables that you can you can take them to your bars, take them to your to your crossbar. Sure. Yeah. They all work, and that's that's what I had to do for the first you know, four or five Everest things. Um, but you know, when you're descending, cables might move. Some of the old Garmin's uh, e even get power off when you take a cable out. Um, right. So so you you really have to kind of work out how am I going to recharge on the go ideally. Because you don't really want to be sat at base camp waiting whilst your garments recharge. Excellent so, point. So have Excellent a convention starting. Um, and then the next one to really think about is lights. So and you're going to use them twice. So if if you well probably so back to our start time, if you if you if you do my preferred option, which is a sort of middle of the small hours of the morning start, um, you're going to use your lights then and then you're probably going to use them again into the into the second night but therefore you can recharge them in between and i've right. i even had you know i've had uh, you know my wife come out to the climb halfway through take the lights home recharge them bring them back um in car chargers tend to be incredibly slow i've noticed yeah they just don't put through they enough power right yeah they don't really do it but, but of course now there are lots of external battery packs available you know, so you right. can you can block in, in the boot of your car um but and are um, you just carrying your backup garmin 
like in your jersey pocket or do you actually have it mounted on your handlebars? I, I actually mounted and, and I have them showing different things. So I'm actually using both effectively. Okay. Since since they're there anyways, you might as well have different yeah. data points displaying yeah. on them, right? Yeah, because I think if it's in your jersey pocket, you know, you might change clothes halfway through. It's it's so easy for it to actually that's the garment that's going to melt down. Um, right. You know, you press the button by mistake or whatever. So I I personally I I just I just add another mount to, to my bars for, for the average. Um, okay. Uh, so uh, personally, uh, having um, seen some really bad things go wrong, not not in Everest things actually, but I now use daytime running lights all the time. So we talked about them in sort of semi-suburban settings, but actually personally, I think just think about using them all the time on any Everest thing anywhere. Um, so. And uh, so you're you're running like a commuter light during the day, basically. Yeah, I basically, I, I personally I use a brand called Exposure. They're really small, they're super bright. They have a six-hour burn time, so I have a couple of sets, and I just keep recycling them. Um, okay. And I just think it it's the, the lights are the biggest single thing you can do to help motorists see you. And, and I've read studies that that prove that really yeah. emphatically. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing is. Um, can you, if you don't have a second computer, by the way, borrow one. Somebody will lend you one for this thing. And the same goes for lights. So your lights need to be as good as possible, like better than you would imagine. Um, I, I have, I've now upgraded three times to a light that I would never have thought that I would have wanted to use for everything because it's quite big and heavy. Um, but actually, I really want to see the wildlife before I hit it. And I, and I want wildlife is huge. I had a lot yeah. of deers and coyotes running around and. And, and they and, had to come and, out at night. Yeah, exactly right. And, and the other thing is, um, and you really, you know, most of us don't ride in the, at night a lot. So actually your client, your descent in the dark is going to be a thing that you, you probably aren't really prepared for. Um, so I, I have over time, I've just upgraded and upgraded my line. And um, uh, and the, the other thing I'd say is, the better it is, the, the faster your descent times will be in the dark. So right. actually, and that that was something that I underestimated in my total yeah. lap times was how much longer I was going to spend descending. And it's not yeah. much in one lap, but times X number of laps. Exactly. But, you know, over maybe yeah. you know, a third of the ride, it can really speed you up. Um, so the final thing, 10, uh, is the mind part. <laughs> <laughs> the head games. It's so, the hardest part. It, it is. And it's actually why it's one of the key reasons why Everesting is so special. Because it, it's not just about can your legs get you there, it's about your head getting you there. And I think it, Andy Andy is quoted as saying, you know, your legs can get you to six thousand meters and then your head has to get you the rest of the way. And that's totally pretty true. true. And and it so yeah, advanced chimp management. My chimp even has a name. I, I gave him a name some years ago. He's, he's, ironically, he's actually called Pete. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and the reason is there's a chap here who wrote a book on chimp management in sport uh, who's called, I can't remember his name, it's, uh, it's Peter something, and I decided I was just going to name my chimp after him. Um, awesome. So here's the tips, because let's, let's imagine your climb to your point earlier, it's always more reps than you possibly imagine to get to the height of Everest. So, so it's just too much. It's just off-putting. You know, it's a big negative. So what I do, I do two things, and I and I do both. The first thing is I break my climb down into manageable 
manageable reps, usually at the end of a block of reps. So let's say if it was 100 reps, I'd break it down into fives, possibly tens. But it's something like that. And at, at the end of that, I'll need to stop, refill a bottle, have something to eat. So the first thing is I break it down into those those chunks. And then the next thing I do, because uh, I grew up as a rock climber, so a long time ago, mountaineering, I read all the Everest books. So I actually I break down those reps to where they would get me on a real ascent of Everest. That is when I read that, that was the first time that I heard somebody doing that, but that's awesome. So and 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 what I've worked out is that if my legs can get me to base camp, Everest base camp, so the real base camp, which is about five and a half thousand meters, I know I can finish. So so actually I, I on my top tube I prepare one, you know, it's just a it's just a word document which I cut down really slim and then I laminate it and I stick it to my top tube. And it's basically five reps, 10 reps, 15 reps, 20 reps. Oh, that gets me to Lockler, for example, which is where the airplane gets you to. And then I, I just keep going and I just tick them off as I go. But I sort of feel like I'm on this real ascent of Everest as I do my blocks of reps. And that is great because you've got these built-in mental wins. Yeah, and it, so it's just a way of compartmentalizing the climb in a couple of different ways. And therefore, it, it, it means that I don't have folks on the whole, which is just too much. Right. Um, so uh, the next thing is be prepared for it to feel hard early. So, you know, has anyone ever ridden a 3000 meter uh, ride where they don't think that's hard? Now, the problem is that's only a third of the way in. So you, you definitely need to prepare yourself for the fact it's going to feel really tough really quickly. Um, but if you've done the training and you've done some practice rides that are big, then you have some reference points. But don't be surprised when you get a third of the way in and, and you kind of go, gosh, this is difficult. That um, is a piece that I really underestimated yeah. personally. Because again, I've done you know 10 plus hour rides yeah, like multiple times, but those have re somehow remained fun pretty much the entire way. But yeah. everything yeah. became mentally difficult and challenging like almost immediately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I, I personally, I, my view is that it's become a physiological thing. It's, it's actually, it is more mental because you're spending so much of your time climbing and, and therefore your, your system is under pressure more so than it would ever be on a normal ride. Even, you know, I've done Everest in Rome. It felt infinitely easier physiologically. It did, because that's kind of what I'm yeah. planning for 2022. Okay. Yeah, and it, it actually, for the record, it's my favorite type of Everest thing because it feels like a real bike ride. Um, right. It's not. It's not just a physical challenge. Um, it, it actually feels like a real bike ride. So it's hard because like ten thousand meters over thirty-six hours. It's not straightforward, but it you're up and down, and therefore you're just getting constant recovery in a way that actually when you're Everest and running laps, particularly most people are running quite a lot of laps. Actually, you're climbing so much of the time. You get relatively little time off on the descent, and I think I, that's actually why I think it's so hard. Um, yeah, yeah, because most Everest things are done in far fewer than 400 kilometers, which is the minimum to qualify for the 10K Rome, right? Correct. So in the Rome, you're almost certainly going to be riding some flat stuff at some point, which, to your point, yeah. makes it feel like a real bike ride. Correct. Yeah, exactly right. And, and uh, you know, uh, 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 the, the kind of unwritten rule I set myself on Rome was no repeats. 
So then it becomes a real routine. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's not in the rules. That was just me personally, but I was kind of like, this thing's going to feel like a proper bike ride. It's just. Yeah, I think be... you need to live in Europe to be able to pull that off. I, unfortunately, we just don't have steep enough roads here. We just yeah, don't. So... I can't. I can't do it without repeats. No, so I, I was we're, we're getting off piece, but I um I, I tried plotting it in a number of different places and just could not get the elevation quickly enough. And then I went to a place. Um, I went to a place called Exmoor in the UK, which is just obscenely hilly. It's got roads everywhere, and they're all at 20 30 percent. And sure enough, it worked. So I, I should I should travel for it if I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, the other place actually, what I should in, do. in Europe, the Ardennes would be amazing because it's exactly the same. You're either going up or down. You're never going flat. Just super steep everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so just back to the the mind game. Um, the, the on my third Everest thing, I had a I had a really tough time. It was it was gravel. I don't think I was on a good day, and and it, I had to ride fifteen laps. And at six, I felt pretty bad to the point where I was like, I don't think I can do this. Um, and you know, is that gravel? Gravel doesn't usually feel this hard. And I told myself I was just going to ride another lap. So forget about fifteen. Just do another one, and then see how you feel. And I never really recovered. As in, I never really felt good. I was by the time I finished, I was just feeling wrong. But I did finish, and I just kept riding another lap. You can almost always do another lap, you know, unless you've been wrapped by cramps or you've, you know, the GI issues have just gone too far. If it's just mental, you can ride another lap. So that's that's my other piece of advice. And the final one, I never ever listen to anything when I'm doing normal riding, because, because I think you know it's. It's one of your key kind of safety sensory things, and therefore I okay. never have a headphone. But when I'm Everesting, I typically have one headphone, and I listen to audiobooks, um, and it just takes my mind off it. So, uh, in fact, actually on my on my second one, the steep one, um, I listened to John Crowker's Into Thin Air, which is this amazing. Which is a, such a great book. And we arrived at the South Pole together. <laughs> just coincidentally. Cool. It was very cool. Um, so yeah, audiobooks, I resort to them and they, you know, on the basis I'm usually solo, so I haven't got people to talk to. They definitely help hugely because otherwise your mind just is going to play games all the time. I listened to a live concert at a point in the day where I was by myself. Just I had people there and then there was a period of time where I was alone and it just took me somewhere else for an hour and a half. Yeah. And yeah. it sort of passed some time. So I think that that's a great point yeah yeah but i just use one headphone because I, I still want to be able to hear things coming a very good point yeah yeah i do too typically yeah i'll just have my well you probably do the opposite side you probably have your left headphone in so you can hear yeah, traffic correct. on your just, right side yeah. right yeah and i do it on the right yeah. so i can hear yeah. traffic on my left yeah 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 okay and, and that's in a nutshell that's it I mean, there's quite a lot there but those are the 10 things that i you know, so for the two things that I'm hoping to Everest next year, I will literally just go through that 10 point checklist and, uh, and I will literally go through all of those things, because even though I've done this a few times now, each climb is different and therefore you've just got to start again. Um, and, and particularly those two are, you know, they're a long way from home because the more, the more Everest that you do, the more confident you get to kind of add in complexity. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it at the start, but yeah, they're both they're abroad. Uh, you know, I'm going to turn up. Can I put my car there? Um, you know, is it going to get towed? Um, 
is it you know where all the entrances to the road is it safe is it so I, I'm, I'm about to make life more difficult for myself but i just go through the checklist one through ten well that's that is absolutely perfect and honestly like looking through it i don't think that you could even order them in terms of importance like they're all critically important other yeah. than saying that maybe safety is number one because at the end of the day if you don't finish it because you crash your bike then that's the worst way to fail correct but other than that i mean you can't overlook any of these things they all need to be considered so what an yeah. awesome and valuable resource so as it becomes updated online let us know and we'll we'll point everybody in that direction too we'll do yeah i mean it's, it's sitting there and, and everything that we just talked about is there but uh i just update it every six months or so very cool okay thank you for doing this guy appreciate You're it very welcome. great to see you Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and thank you again to Guy Townsend. We do have one more episode recorded with Guy. That is just about his Everesting journey, some of the stats of his Everesting, a comparison between a short kilometers Everesting versus a long kilometers Everesting. Very, very interesting stuff, and we're going to launch that for you in the next month or so. That's going to be a really good one, so stay tuned for that. We'll be back very soon. Thank you to Matt Deneff for providing our original Everesting music. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in.